So let's take a look at also, in terms of the concept, some descriptions of this justice of God. And first of all, God has absolute right and authority over his creatures. And from that authority, he has every right. And in fact, his justice demands that he deal with evil. So it's a necessary area of God's dealing with with a sinful humanity. A good description of justice by a theologian by the name of W.G.T. Shedd, he says the following, Justice is that phase of God's holiness which is seen in his treatment of the obedient and the disobedient subjects of his government. That's a simple and easy description to visualize and understand. So God is dealing with subjects or dealing with creatures and he has to deal with the disobedient and he has to stop that disobedience. He doesn't do it immediately, but in time God deals and he's dealt historically as cultures degenerate and even on an individual basis as individuals require his intervention. So we are subjects of his government And when we do the things that he desires, then not only are we better off and happy, but it also means that God does not have to intervene. So I hope that's helpful in understanding the concept of God's justice. And the scriptures are full of passages dealing with not simply the justice of God, but this whole area of how God carries it out. So let's look at the concept biblically and from different angles and from uh, different words that are utilized to describe God's justice. First of all, scriptures are crystal clear in telling us that God is judge. In fact, that's one of the descriptive words that are used in describing the character and nature of God, God as judge. And there's several passages, we'll look at them briefly. For example, part of Genesis 18.25, the last part, this is on the occasion of a coming judgment, the coming judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the obvious answer is yes, God is going to deal justly and he's going to rain down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and it's going to be just. But that passage identifies God as the judge of all the earth. Psalm 50 verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness. In other words, he has standards and he stands in right relationship to all of the standards that he is and that he has instituted. Last part of the phrase, for God himself is judge. So he's a righteous judge. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. There's where he spells out his standards. Then the last part, the Lord is our king. He will save us. So he's judge and king, Psalm 33, 22. A New Testament passage, Hebrews 12, 23, states to the General Assembly and Church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. So he's identified as judge. And these are just a few of several passages that identify God as judge. And as judge, he executes and carries out justice. And there's a number of passages that relate to the fact of justice and also the executing of justice. Job 8.3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? The obvious answer is no, God does not pervert justice and he in fact does do what is right. Psalm 33.5, Referring to God, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord, so he loves justice. And it's a necessary function that God enters into because he must deal with with sin, and when he deals with sin, he loves it. He loves the fact that uh, justice is effected. 
Isaiah 30:18 Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you so he desires to be gracious because we need grace particularly in light of his justice verse goes on and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you for the Lord is a God of justice how blessed are those who long for him So it's a good thing to long for him and his justice, but we need it in the midst of grace. In the New Testament passage, 1 Peter 1.17, he judges impartially. So it's perfectly fair, perfectly righteous, perfectly impartial. He's called the Father who judges each one impartially. So God is not only judge, but he carries out his justice impartially. As judge, he is sovereign over all things. So that means he is in total control. The the world, humanity, is not simply heading towards disaster. Now, it would if God did not intervene, but he will intervene in his time, in his way, and using the means that he has chosen. So he acts sovereignly as judge. He also acts in goodness because he cares for his creatures. And his justice is an expression of his goodness because without it, evil would destroy that that God loves. So he acts in goodness. He also acts in wisdom. He executes judgment in wisdom. It's not random. It's not malicious, but... It is wise. It takes into account all the data available, all the information, and acts upon it in wisdom. Now, God also acts with power. He has omnipotent power, and it is his omnipotent power at work when he is executing justice. An illustration of that would be the Genesis flood, where the entire earth was destroyed. Omnipotent power unleashed to effect God's justice. And it is righteous. It is according to his standards, according to the things that God has established in the universe. It is a perfectly righteous act. And when he acts, he acts in perfect righteousness. We could also speak in terms of the righteousness of God. So when he acts in righteousness, there are several passages that refer to him as a righteous God. Daniel 9:14 The Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. So everything that God does, he performs and acts in righteousness. Psalm 89:14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. So we can praise him. In fact, this is a praise. Psalm 89 It also includes loving kindness and truth go before him. So in the same context, righteousness and justice, loving kindness and truth. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Again, the parallel with kindness, they go hand in hand. Deuteronomy 32, 4, God is described as the rock His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So God is a righteous God that must bring about justice, and that's the only means by which things can be made right in the universe, and God does, in fact, bring it about. So those are some of the scriptures relating to God as judge and the concept of justice. Now, when we speak of justice, we can distinguish two areas, and some passages refer to some area in contrast to the other. So there are two areas that we want to look at. One, and very briefly, one is God's retributive justice. And when we speak of this area, we're speaking in terms of retribution or payment of that that is due, where God inflicts penalties, that's retributive justice. This is what we deserve. 
This is what we all will, in fact, encounter apart from God's mercy. And because of that, we are doomed because of God's retributive justice, because we deserve the full execution of that justice. But because of grace, we escape that because Jesus took upon himself all of this justice when he died on the cross we receive grace in return rather than what we deserve. There's a second area. It's called remunerative justice. And this is the area of God rewarding, where God distributes rewards. They also are on the basis of grace. We deserve judgment, but we reserve by grace not only salvation, but even above and beyond that, God has promised rewards. A passage on God's remunerative justice, Romans 2, 6, and 7, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So he's going to render according to deeds, remunerative. So believers are undeserving of these, but yet God has been pleased in his goodness and his grace to bestow this area of justice. Our discussion would not be complete without also a discussion of the outpouring or the display of justice. We call that God's wrath, where God, in fact, brings about justice And it's an expression of his wrath, and it displays that perfection of God, the wrath of God. C.K. Barrett describes the wrath of God with the following, Wrath is God's personal, though never malicious or in a bad sense, emotional reaction against sin. So it is God carrying out justice, reacting against sin, and in fact, separating out that that destroys from that that God loves, and it requires wrath. And we need to look at what the scriptures teach concerning God's wrath. First of all, probably a good starting point is great is the wrath of the Lord, 2 Kings twenty two thirteen. It is mighty, it is great. Now, it is also fearsome, and we have a lot of descriptions of it. So, wrath is his holy reaction against sin. And if you look at several of the passages, you will see that many of them describe it in very vivid terms. I've got some of them on a a slide here. Some of these passages describe God's Wrath as burning anger. In fact, the imagery of fire is very common in a lot of the descriptions. So it's described as a burning anger and burning wrath. There's a good passage that we need to look at, Jeremiah 23, 19 and 20, because it, it also gives us a perspective on the wrath of God. But it also describes in vivid terms, Behold, The storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. So there you have the word wrath. Even a whirling tempest. It will whirl down on the head of the wicked. And then verse 20, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until it has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. Did you notice the little phrase in there? There's a purpose behind it. It's not just an an expression of emotion. It's not without purpose, without direction. But God carries out justice, fulfilling part of the purpose of his heart. That's what Jeremiah 23, 20 tells us. And in fact, we can look back and see, even from the beginning when sin entered, God predicted that he would ultimately deal with sin in that Genesis 3.15 passage. And we can view all of world history as God intervening to bring about his justice, and that justice is carried out through his wrath. He has to react against sin. So it's described as a 
burning wrath, for example, Psalm 78, 21, therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel. Very descriptive. Deuteronomy 29:28 and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath. So there's the idea of fury, great wrath, and the kindling of his anger. Ezekiel 20:33-34 As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out an outpouring of wrath. It goes on, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands. This is Israel, where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Now, in this context, this wrath will be poured out upon the enemies of the nation of Israel and the ones that God used to discipline Israel. They eventually will fall under the wrath of God. So this is an encouragement to Israel that God is going to deal with the enemies of the nation of Israel. So it's anger, it's burning anger, it's fury, it's anger kindled. Psalm 97, for we have been consumed. It's a consuming anger, a consuming fire. It's blazing in other contexts as well. Other passages describe it as smoking, like with a fire. Or fierce, like Isaiah thirty thirty, Fierce anger, fierce wrath. There's even a passage that describes it as rage. Now, this is without sin when it describes God's wrath. But we also are encouraged that God is also slow to anger. One of the passages is Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passing in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed or loving kindness and truth. So that's the wrath of God. Some other passages that are very vivid and add to this description, for example, Nahum, Nahum 2 through 8, and I've got only the first few verses there on on the slide. Describes God, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Now, jealous in the sense of zealous, without sin, without evil, and avenging, not in the sense of irrational reaction, but in terms of making things right. And then it goes on, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And then if you skip to verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? There's that little phrase again. His wrath is poured out. We looked at that phrase as well, like fire, and the rocks are broken up by it. A very vivid and sobering passage. Now there's other passages. For example, Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. Now, this is addressed to those that were persecuting those at Thessalonica, and God is going to make things right. So that's an encouraging passage as well. And the passage beginning in verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, part of his judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. That's the persecution. And then verse 6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And then here it is, the outpouring of wrath, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a passage of encouragement for those that are that are suffering. Psalm 78:49 also it says he sent upon them his burning anger, fury, and we can add another word here, indignation and also trouble, a band of destroying angels. 
Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else his wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So it's all consuming. Similarly, we have Isaiah 13.9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury. This looks to the future. There's going to come the day of the Lord. It's going to be cruel. It's going to be an outpouring of wrath. It's going to have fury. It's going to have burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. He will remove evil, remove sin. First Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's good to end on a positive note concerning God's wrath, realizing that we will escape that wrath. We have received grace based on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. There are many examples of God pouring out wrath in judgment in the Old Testament. So let me give you a quick overview of some of those Old Testament judgments. First of all, even at the fall, when God confronted Adam and Eve, you could uh, consider the consequences of their sin, the death that was inflicted, the cursing not only of Satan, but of the earth. And you could even think in terms of the cursing of man and, and woman. That was an outpouring of wrath. Those were consequences. We're still living under the effects of the first sin. So we are still under the, the curse and the judgments of God, the wrath of God. Our suffering is a result of what God has implemented in the garden. Probably the best illustration and best known judgment is the Genesis flood, where the entire world was judged. Even Babel would be considered a judgment because man was heading in a direction the very opposite of what God intended. And the judgment at Babel was the confusing of languages in order to redirect the direction of humanity at that point. Sodom and Gomorrah, on a localized basis, the cities of the plain were utterly destroyed as a result of a direct intervention by God, a great display of wrath, a display of justice and judgment. But also, all of these judgments are not only judgments, but they're also examples of salvation. Even Adam and Eve, God provides a means and a promise that he will ultimately deal with sin. And you can see that Adam and Eve responded to that, and God provides garments to cover them, which illustrate salvation. The Genesis flood, God separated out one family and destroyed the world, because the world was totally corrupt. So also at Babel, God scattered the peoples, to prepare for a people that he would call out to create his own nation through Abraham. So he calls out Abraham out of all of the masses of humanity. Sodom and Gomorrah is a story of salvation of Lot and his family as well. But God intervened in order to judge the cities that were totally corrupt. Israel in the wilderness was rebellious and God separated out that first generation and then gave a renewed promise to the second generation that would conquer the land. So the wilderness experience was a judgment of God as well. In the time of the conquest, God chose a different means to bring judgment upon the Canaanite peoples that lived in the land of Canaan at the time of the conquest. The only difference between that judgment and, let's say, the judgment of the flood was the judgment of the flood was God's direct intervention using floodwaters as the instrument, whereas in the conquest, God chose to use the nation of Israel as his instruments in bringing judgment upon the Canaanites. And you remember in Genesis, in the Abrahamic covenant, 
God promised in the Abrahamic covenant that there would come a day when the sin of the Amorites would come to, to fullness and he would intervene. That is the time of the conquest. And God patiently waited, but the time was up and God was judging the Canaanites in the conquest. Similarly, the fall of Israel As Israel degenerated, fell into idolatry, God intervened and he destroyed the nation. First, the northern tribes were not only scattered, but also taken captive by the Assyrians. And then eventually, a few hundred years later, the Babylonians conquered the the south. Judah and Benjamin took them captive to, to Babylon. But that as well, is a story of salvation. It's a story of God preserving a remnant that ultimately use in restoring them to receive their Messiah. Some of them did in the first century, and some of them will at the second coming of Messiah. So God is preserving the nation of Israel, otherwise they would have totally destroyed themselves. Can you think of the greatest judgment that has ever occurred in the past? Well, That judgment is what God poured out on Jesus Christ, the wrath that he endured on the cross. He bore the penalty of all sin of all of humanity. That was the greatest display of God's wrath on the sinless Lord Jesus Christ, that he would bear the penalty that all of us deserve and that you and I may be able to receive grace by trusting in that provision for our sin. Now, on a timeline, we can put these on our time chart here, and I do that simply to illustrate that these are historical events. These are not mythological, and also to show that God, over time, progressively has been dealing with sin, And this will lay a foundation for some of the future judgments that we will study, the eschatological judgments that are future even from our time frame. But we can see that God has progressively dealt with sin throughout history, beginning with the fall, then the flood, later on Babel, not too long after the flood. After that, in the time of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Even later than that, during the time that Israel, in their beginnings, during the wilderness, he had to deal with them. The judgment of the Canaanites during the conquest, and then at the end of the Old Testament history of the nation of Israel, the judgment that fell upon them as well. And then at the center of God's time in history, God brought wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, the crucifixion. So this concept is very clear in Scripture, very explicit, many, many passages, in fact, hundreds of passages dealing with not only the justice of God, not only God as judge, but God pouring out wrath and executing that justice and displays of righteousness. So many passages that we can consider, and this lays a foundation for what we will look at next in terms of future judgments. It's been a while since we've met, but we're still looking at the period of time that is described as tribulation. We get that word from Scripture itself. It's a general term, but it also has specific application and We're using it as a descriptive term of that specific period of time that is described in many other ways with other words as well. Throughout Scripture, as a horrendous period of time, unique in all of history, where God is essentially, you might even say, cleansing the earth in preparation for the consummation of all things. So I gave you an introduction to that period, and we found the basis for it in Daniel chapter 9, so another way of describing that seven-year period. So, it's giving you an introduction here, and we also looked at at the nature of it, where I stressed the horrendous aspect of it, using a lot of the biblical phrases that describe it, and some of the conditions, so we focused on the conditions, 
And then we ended our last time looking at judgments of God, judgments in general, the concept of judgment, the necessity of judgments, and the fact that we even yearn for God to make things right. And that's what judgment is all about, is God is dealing with sin and evil that destroys. So we looked at past judgments, and then we... Ended at that point, and we're going to focus today on future judgments. And there's a lot of eschatology related to them. So let's look at uh, future judgments. Before we do that, there's a big controversy in the broader church, not so much amongst evangelicals or even conservatives. And as a result, there are different views on final judgment. Some of them are way out there and totally unbiblical, so I have that first category as unbiblical views, all the way from the viewpoint that is surprisingly common, that there's no judgment at all, that God is a God of grace, a God of love, and there's no judgment, essentially, no future judgment, at least, in some They believe, Roman Catholicism believes in a purgatory as a judgment, so everything is focused on it. There are some that believe in annihilationism, in other words, as soon as people die, particularly unbelievers, if they don't go to heaven, there's some that believe everyone does, but a universal idea. But if they don't, then they just cease to exist. They go into nothingness. So that's annihilationism. And there are some evangelicals that lean in that direction as well. There are some that believe that the history that is unfolding is really judgment. It's God's judgment. And after we spend history, then we go into an eternal state. So that view would basically believe that everyone goes to heaven or there's a heavenly state. So this time that we're living in, and they would base it on just the evil all around us, which we would not deny. And others believe that the righteous shall be happy and the wicked will be miserable, but no real judgment, just more of an ongoing condition. So those are all unbiblical, unsupported by any scriptural basis. And then there are Probably the majority of the church, the broader church, including some evangelicals and even some conservatives, you would have to say, believe in one general judgment. So all of the passages that refer to future judgment are concentrated into one, or they interpret them as describing just the one final judgment at the end of all of history. This is held by Catholics, by Protestants, And even conservatives like Hodge, Charles Hodge, the great theologian. Remember, he's amillennial, so this is an amillennial view as well. It's also the postmillennial view. So some of them would be conservatives that would believe in one general, all-encompassing, one final judgment. Christ is the judge. There is a definite future event. It's not a process. According to this viewpoint, it occurs at the end of history, or some believe at the second coming, or some put the two together at the same time, and that's probably the most common view. The view that we hold to, we would describe as premillennial. The premillennial view has a lot of detail to it. In fact, we're accused of complicating eschatology, but we're attempting to allow the biblical text to dictate our interpretation, and if you do that, then there seems to be some differences in the descriptions of all of these variety of of judgments, so we separate them out. We see them not even at the same time, different occasions, dealing with different groups. So the premillennial view certainly is more complex, and there's a series of future judgments with one final great white throne judgment that is different from all the other other judgments. And we would emphasize the certainty of these judgments. Now those that hold some, those conservatives that hold to one, they would also agree in terms of the certainty. 
they would just say that there's a certainty of one final judgment. We would say there's a certainty of judgment, and that judgment comes in different phases or stages, you might say. And there's lots of verses. Paul, for example, in fact, it's probably good to read these. Mark, you want to start with Acts 17. Jim, why don't you go to 10.42 in the book of Acts. And what I'm emphasizing here is just the writers of Scripture, Paul, Peter, writer of Hebrews, Sheila, do you want to get that one? 9.27. And then Mark, come back to John 12.48. And... Jim, Matthew 13, 30. So first of all, Acts 17, 30 and 31. We want to read it loud so we can pick it up. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising them from the dead. Remember the audience here. This is These are unbelieving philosophers at Athens. So unbelievers. He's giving them the certainty of judgment. And men should repent everywhere. He's already given an apologetic sermon. This is towards the end of it. And he's coming to his conclusion here. That you Athenians are going to stand before a holy God. Basically lays out the certainty of it. There's other passages that Paul gives, for example, Romans 2, 5, and 6. I don't have that on the screen, but Paul says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. There is coming a day of wrath, a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's according to God's righteous standards. And then it goes on, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So there's a basis for judgment. And then Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Do you have that one? I did. I went on to Matthew. It it went away, yeah. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly, solemnly to testify that this is the one who Appointed by God as judge and the dead. Okay, so Jesus Christ has been appointed to be judge of the living and the dead. And that's that's Peter speaking in the writer of Hebrews 9.27, Sheila. And as it is appointed once, but after this. Okay, so it's appointed. In other words, it's decreed. This is a decree of God that there be a judgment. God must bring a final resolution to sin. And all men die, all men die once, and after this comes judgment. So the certainty of it, writer Hebrews, and then Jesus, John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what I will judge him on this day. On that last day, Jesus is going to judge. Now, it's little phrases like this that those that believe in one judgment, they would say, hey, there's one last judgment. Jesus says it, John 12, 48, and it's phrased in that way in other places as well. The way we harmonize that is, yes, there is a final judgment. That's the great white throne judgment. But there's also a series of others that are described besides that one last judgment. But the point being here is, Jesus affirms the certainty of a final judgment. Then Matthew 13.30, in fact, in these parables of the kingdom, one of them, 13.30, you got that one? In fact, uh, hold your place because I'm going to have you read 39 as well. 30, 13.30. Allow both to put together another harvest. Now this is the wheat and the tares parable. Reading. And in the time of the harvest, we'll say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, and if you remember the interpretation of that, the the tares are unbelievers and the wheat are believers. So there's a judgment, a separating of the wheat from the tares. Then verse 39, you have that? It's another parable. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers angels. The reapers are angels. This is another judgment. The end of the age. Now, we would interpret that the end of the age spans not just one single day, but a period of time where there's a series of judgments within the end of the age. 
And if you read uh, the parable of the dragnet, that's another parable, 1349. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And our hearts yearn for that. We, we yearn to be separated out from not only our own sin, but from the sin of the unbeliever. So Jesus affirms the certainty of final judgment. And from the premillennial view, we see a series of them. So I've got a list on this slide. We'll look at them as they unfold. But the first one, in fact, you might even be able to come up with what is the first future judgment that scriptures speak of that is distinct and separate, different from the great white throne, in fact, different from all of the others that I have a list of here? Christ on the Well, future. Tribulation. There's one that comes before. And a better word is, rather than rapture, Bema. The Bema judgment. The Bema judgment. That's future. That comes before, if you, it's outside of time, so in terms of time, but in in terms of the earth, it's probably at the rapture, or shortly around that event, if you will. The judgment seat of Christ. Now, we won't go into detail on it because we spent some time looking at it when we spoke of the church. This is where believers in the church age are judged at the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ. And this involves Christians. So on my little chart here, I'm also distinguishing the different groups that God separates out for judgment. And the emphasis there has nothing to do, we said, nothing to do with salvation, has everything to do with how we live the Christian life and rewards and or, what Paul says, suffering loss, whatever that may be. And I also said that uh, this is probably experienced during the millennial kingdom. That'll be when we will not only experience the rewards, but also the uh, suffering of loss, whatever that is. So the objects would be Christians. The consequences, you could say, are rewards for faithfulness, faithful walk, faithful service, faithful ministry. But in 1 Corinthians 3, we also have the potential of loss, is the way that uh, Paul phrases it. In 2 John, John describes it as, how does he describe it there? Receiving a full reward, I think, is the way that he describes it. In other words, there's a possibility of it not be complete or full. So there are some negatives involved at the Bema. And that's just mainly by reminder. And if we put them on this timeline, this is the day of the Lord. This is the last days, the end of the age. We put it at either simultaneous or outside of time, but from the perspective of earth, it would be in terms of the rapture. And I'll put the other judgments on this timeline as well. So that's the first future judgment, the Bema judgment, also translated judgment seat of Christ. There is an evaluation, there is a separating out of evil from the believer That's what judgment is, is God separating out that that he wants to preserve from that that destroys. And what destroys us is the old nature. We will be freed of the old nature at the Bema. And there will be rewards as well as loss associated with it. And then we have what Mark suggested, the tribulation judgments. And there's an abundance of these. And they come in a variety of forms. And they take place during this seven-year period, so they don't come all at once. And some of them overlap. Some of them perhaps take place at the very same time as other judgments are going on. We don't have a specific time frame for these, so there's different viewpoints on, on how these work out in general, at least. Most commentators, however, see a sequence For example, we have a series of three groups of judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls that are described in the book of Revelation. And when we get to the point, I'll give you the same chart that wasn't erased from last time that show two different sequences that the major differences between the interpretive views are those. I'll give you the reason why I hold to the one that I think is the better one. 
So tribulation judgments. Here the earth is judged along with the inhabitants on the earth. And from the perspective of separating out evil, it, it appears that God is almost, you might say, cleansing the earth. Cleansing the earth of evil along with the participants on the earth or the people that are on the earth. So tribulation judgments. We have a lot of detail on them, but let's just kind of summarize them. These, the objects, the earth, and men that dwell. Earth dwellers. That's how they're described in the book of Revelation. Earth dwellers. Interesting little phrase. They're the objects, the consequences. They come in the form of cataclysms. Variety of forms, a lot of them astrophysical, some of them geophysical, some of them physical consequences as a result of men's decisions like wars, like deception. These are all judgments, tribulation judgments. Persecution would be a form of these judgments, separating out and purifying the saints, some of them separating them out by martyrdom. So they would include that as well. And the three specific groups, the first one, are the seal judgments. And the seal judgments are grouped in four. There are four seals that are described with the imagery of four horsemen. And if you haven't already turned to the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 6, and we'll summarize the six that are described in chapter 6. Now, in terms of the context here, the end of chapter 3, we have those seven letters dealing with with the seven churches, that's chapters 2 and 3, and in them, these are letters from the, the Lord Jesus himself. They're letters I take, much like any other letter that, Any other author would have written in the New Testament. They're inspired. These are unique in that these are from Jesus Christ himself. And he makes observations concerning these churches. He evaluates them. He gives them warnings and gives them promises. Warnings that they need to repent and change their ways. Promises that they will be rewarded as a result of faithfulness. And then after chapter 3 and 7 churches, the scene shifts to heaven. So we have a heavenly scene in chapters 4 and 5. And in those chapters, the focus of chapter 4 is the throne and everything around a throne, a heavenly throne. The emphasis is worship. So all that's going on before that throne is worship. The rapture is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. But John is transported up there, whether in vision or actually physically, but at least he sees the scene of chapters 4 and 5. And 4, we have all of these creatures praising God before the throne. Then in chapter 5, it continues. Not only does the praise continue, but now the focus is on this, this book or this scroll. And it has seven seals. It's sealed up. This scroll, there's a variety of interpretations concerning what it is. Probably the best view, it is something of a title deed of all of the earth. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God designed man to rule the earth. And is given more specificity as history unfolds. Eventually it's the nation of Israel that is to rule. They're unfaithful, they fail, so God removes them. And even man, even Adam and Eve, fail in terms of their assignment in the garden. And from that point on, there's a usurper that is ruling the world since Adam and Eve. Satan himself, he's called the God of this world. There's a title deed that is rightfully owned by mankind. Mankind has forfeited that with sin. But the second Adam, the one that is sinless... He has rights over this title deed, if you will. So chapter 5, we have the Lamb. In fact, there's no one worthy to open this scroll because of sin. So John is a little bit depressed, if you will, or at least dismayed in the passage. 
And then an angel announces that there is one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one that is worthy, and he's the only one. And then all break out into worship again. Now, in chapter 6, so that's the context of chapter 6, this scroll, that's the main focus, this title deed. And the analogy is drawn from scrolls of the first century or title deeds of the first century or wills that were drawn up, wills of inheritance that were passed on, and they were sealed until the appropriate time when uh, the heirs would open it up and see what would be contained within so that's the imagery in the background, and in chapter 6, we have the beginning of the Lamb opening the scroll, probably the title deed, and he's taking ownership, and as he opens it, it's a series of these six seal judgments. Does that make sense? So as he opens them, they are judgments that begin the process of preparing, I think, the earth for occupation again by God's people. And the Jews looked for an inheritance. This is the inheritance that all of the Old Testament, I think, anticipates. The ultimate inheritance in the kingdom with Messiah ruling. And as these seals are broken, now we have these actions that are going to take place on earth. So the the scene shifts from heaven, chapters 4 and 5, to earth. So let's take a look at them. Sheila, why don't you start off with looking at the first two verses of chapter six. Of chapter six. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard her saying a voice like, Come and see. And I live worse. He who sat on it had a bow and crowns, and he went out conquering and to her. So John is seeing a series of visions of these breaking or opening of these seals. And the Lamb, that's the favorite descriptive phrase of John throughout the book of Revelation, 28 times at least. So this is Jesus Christ. This is, he's the one that is bringing these judgments. He's the one that is executing the will, if you will. So the lamb breaks the seven seals, or one of the seven seals, the first one. Living creatures, these are described in chapters 4 and 5. These are probably angelic creatures, living beings, you could even translate it, and they are saying, as with a voice, come. In other words, probably to John or the observer, come and observe, and then we have the first one with a horseman. He's the white horseman, and he commentators are confused over this. Many of them see this, the possibilities is Christ, because Christ comes on a white horse in chapter 19, so they equate this with the coming of Christ. And when Christ comes, he's coming to rule, and we have imagery of rulership here with a crown. This is a diadema. This is a crown of rulership, and it's given to him and those that would assume Christ, that God grants Christ rulership over the earth, and he went out conquering and to conquer. In other words, this is part of subduing the earth, part of taking control, part of rulership. So the imagery seems to fit, and some commentators take that view. But probably the best view is there's going to come a false messiah that has a lot of characteristics that look like a messiah, looks like he is one that is worthy of riding on a white horse, who will in fact conquer, but during this period of time, and it'll probably be a peaceful conquering. I see a parallel with other passages like First uh, Thessalonians 5, when it talks about, they'll be say, saying peace, and then peace will be taken away. I also see the Olivet Discourse as parallel, at least the early part of the Olivet Discourse, parallel with what we have in Revelation chapter 6. Those parallels are so striking that I think the two together specify that this is taking place during Daniel's 70th week. And we have the unfolding of these events during that period of time. The church is not there. Church is not involved. And what Jesus specifies at the very beginning is a warning. And what's the first warning that Jesus specifies in the Olivet Discourse? Remember? It's related to... Oh, like he refers back to Daniel. Well, no, that's, that's verse 15, but... In verse 4, 
Christs and false Christs, messianic figures. And I think we have one that is prominent, and rather than Christ pictured on a white horse, because of the context, these are judgments. And here's a, an odd one, but it, it's a judgment all the same. We have the rise of Antichrist, and I think that's the better view. The rise of this false messiah that dominates all the other false messiahs. So I take it that the white horseman and the rider is Antichrist, and what he introduces at the beginning is a false peace. That false peace, along with the covenant, is going to propel him to world dominance. And in a very short period of time, he will basically dominate the world. He will become a dictator over the entire world. So the first judgment, I think, is this false peace. This is the judgment. And it gives a false sense of security, and it's, it's false, it's not real, and it's going to be shocking to people when it's taken away. And the second one, the second writer, Mark, do you want to pick up there and read three and four? When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out and to him, to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to So there's the removal of peace. And what's the parallel in uh, the Olivet Discourse? Christ and false Christ, and then Sheila says wars and rumors of wars. We have the parallel there. And other passages as well describe wars throughout this period of time. It's going to be a period of turmoil. So the red horse is one that has a makaira. There are different types of swords, if you will, in the first century. This one is the executioner's sword, one that brings war. It's an executioner, but it was also used in in battle, in war. It was a long sword as opposed to a shorter dagger-type sword. This is a reproduction of one that some believe that in the first century they would have looked something like this. This is what a warrior would uh, be equipped with to go to war. And that same type of sword was also used in the government of, of the Roman Empire to execute judgment on individuals as well. So we have war, and just some images just to portray destruction of war. And in this case, when we're looking at these judgments, you need to think global. These are global. These are things going on all over the world. And when Jesus says wars and rumors of wars, he's speaking globally. And then we have a third horse, Jim 5 and 6. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third lifter saying, Come, I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the creature saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for and do not damage the oil. Let's look at the individual parts here. First of all, we have this repeating, like we did in the second seal there. He who broke the third seal, who is the he? Not only in verse 3, but also in verse 5. The lamb. And John, again, hears a voice. Here's the third living creature. There's four in all in chapters 4 and 5. So a different angelic creature, but of the same rank, you might say, same characteristics. John looks, and he sees, and then now we have a third horse. This one is a black one. We had a white one. We had a red one, and now we have a, a black one. And there's one that's seated on here, on the horse. He has a pair of scales in his hands. The imagery there takes us not only to war, but it also takes us to uh, a marketplace. This is what would be very common in a marketplace. Because you need the scales to weigh out the product to figure out the cost. So a certain amount would weigh a certain amount, and the value of it would be priced, just like you would find in any market here. You know, you the price tag is there, a certain number of uh, dollars for a certain number of pounds of apples or whatever you're selling, whatever fruit or whatever commodity. So you have these scales, 
And in the marketplace, you'd have, it'd be like a flea market that you would go to today, or in a lot of countries, you go to a marketplace and there's just a stand here and a stand there. In fact, in Ukraine, it's real common, the street will be lined with vendors and you can buy any variety of not only food, but some of them sell clothing, some of them sell jewelry, you know, a whole variety, whatever, whatever sells. You have a variety there and people will have their little scales even. And some of them are a little bit more overt. And some of them would say, hey, come on over here. I've got, I've got exactly what you need. And they would describe it. That's the scene that we have here. And when John hears here, he's hearing one of these vendors and the vendor cries out. And he's basically telling the audience or whoever would listen, come here. I'm selling a quart of wheat for a denarius. And if you're interested in uh, barley, three quarts of barley for a denarius. But I also have oil and I have wine, but you can't afford it. Don't You can't even touch it. It's too expensive for you. But hopefully you'll be a buyer of the wheat and the, the barley. A denarion in the first century was approximately a day's wage for a person. That was the going rate, basically, in the first century. So what he's basically saying, what is he describing here? A quart of wheat, and that's about the amount that would feed a family for one day. So he's saying one day's wages for one day's worth of wheat. Now the poor would eat barley and or they would buy barley for animals as well. So you can get three quarts of it for one denarius. So now you're making a choice. Do I feed my family or do I feed my animals? So what is described here, and what's the parallel in Matthew chapter 24? There's wars and rumors of wars and famines in various places. See how the parallel fits? What he's describing, using the imagery of a marketplace, is famine conditions, and people are not going to be able to afford the luxuries like wine and oil. In other words, you can't touch them. They're out of your price range. Famine conditions, overwhelming famine conditions all over the world. And what usually follows war, because of the destruction and the devastation of resources, is famine. That's very common after wars. Particularly that was common in the first century, and that's going to be extremely common during this seven-year period of time. So the black horseman, I think, is a picture of famine, famine conditions. And this is a reproduction, the photo there of what archaeologists have found and reconstructed set of scales there where they would weigh a commodity and then it would be priced at whatever pricing was current during that time frame. I think it's easy to visualize. So what's described here are conditions that uh, are very devastating, not only as a result of war, but the results of that famine. So that's the third seal. Sheila, do you want to seven and eight? This is the opening of the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the church saying, Come and see. So I looked pale in the name of him who sat on, and power was given to them, filled with sword. This gives you a feel for the devastation of war and famine. And what follows war and famine? Death. What we have here is an ashen or a pale green horse, kind of a, I don't know what what the word we would describe that in terms of just the putridness of what's going on here. Structured, very similar. He, referring back to the lamb, broke the fourth seal. Here's another creature here, and he sees the horse, and death and Hades was following on this horse here. Death follows, and that's what follows famine and war. And the interesting thing here, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and with pestilence. And what does Jesus describe as well? Not only uh, famines, but pestilence as well. The imagery in Matthew 24 is also that of death. And wild beasts, because beasts are going hungry as a result of these judgments that are going on. As a result of the war, there's wolves and other creatures that uh, also need sustenance. So there's going to be a problem with them as well. And the numbers are... uh, This is why scholars have such a difficult time with the book of Revelation. It's the scale. 
there's nothing unusual about the language here, and there's a tendency to spiritualize the, the numbers and spiritualize the descriptions, but if you realize what's going on in terms of the severity and believe what the, the text tells us, we're talking about global scale, and we're talking about just massive things that are unimaginable. That's why Jesus says there's never been a time like it. What it describes, a quarter of the population is destroyed. And just to give a feel for that, if there are 7 billion people today, that would be 1.75 billion people. That would be like all of China and most of Eastern Europe. Composite. Now, this is going on all over the world, but I'm giving you kind of the imagery of the size of this. An entire country like China and probably Russia combined wiped off the, the face of the earth. A fourth and that's all over the world, worldwide. Unimaginable death. And these are just photos from the Holocaust just to give a kind of an image of what is going to be common throughout the world. It's just images like this. Mass death, mass burials, mass destruction. So the fourth seal judgment is death. And these are increasing. As we get into deeper into the Great Tribulation, these are beginning to multiply on one another death. And if I haven't mentioned it already, I, I, I should have mentioned at the beginning, I see chapter 6 as a panoramic picture of the entire seven-year period. I follow this parallel sequence where the seal judgments begin at the beginning. There's going to be a false peace. That peace is going to be taken away. And as a result of war, there's going to be famines. And as a result of war and famine, there's going to be death. So I see these kind of progressing sequentially in terms of the seals. And then when we look at the trumpet judgments, I think they're going to overlap and be parallel. So things are going to progressively get worse and worse on planet Earth.